Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Today's is a very difficult topic, but it was not a difficult conversation to have, meaning um, it wasn't it wasn't hard to talk about it. It actually, I felt, was very helpful and clarifying. However, obviously, if you yourself have a history of either sexual or spiritual abuse, or both, as in the case of one of our guests, um, listen at your own risk. You have no judgment from me if you just skip this one out. I, uh, I'm not going to do a lot of introduction here because at the beginning of the interview, I basically give the backstory of what we're talking about. Let me just tell you a little bit about our two guests Jennifer Kelly was 37 years connected to the L'Arche community that Jean Vanier founded. She's the former executive director of the Seattle location. Uh, she is now a retreat and spiritual director and a consultant. And she's the founder and director of Jesuit Restorative Justice Initiative Northwest. She is a Catholic woman. 
And I was very, very happy to have her join us today. She also knows quite well Father Paul Fitterer, who is the Jesuit that I have mentioned many times on this podcast and in interviews on other podcasts when I tell the stories about how, you know, I almost became a Catholic. I was hanging out with this Jesuit. That was Father Paul. She knows him much better than I do, but we had that in common. And then Chris Hoke, uh, if you listen to Depolarize, you might remember him from season one. He is an author and also runs a nonprofit in Mount Vernon, Washington called Underground Ministries, where he works with inmates and the formerly incarcerated. And as he mentions as well, he's working on something called One Parish, One Prisoner, which I'm very excited about. Okay, uh, not a lot to say. We're just going to let this conversation go the way it goes. Um, Godspeed as you listen and, and process this difficult stuff. Jennifer and Chris, thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm in a very weird state of mind right now because we just had 10, 15 minutes of kind of getting more acquainted. And I'm like, so excited to get to know you better, Jennifer. And like, I haven't seen Chris in a while. And I'm in this like great mood. And now we are about to talk about the worst possible thing ever. So I'm trying to mentally transition uh, from this excitement about new friends to actually one of the harder things I've had to think about in the last year. So let me give a little bit of background. Uh, correct me if I get any of these things wrong, but here's a 30,000 foot overview. So Jean Vanier was a French Canadian Catholic, kind of almost a priest, didn't quite become a priest after he was uh, in the Navy and had like a promising Navy career, quit that to do ministry, basically ends up founding L'Arche Community, which is a residential home for the disabled um, with a strong Catholic sort of spiritual overlay. That ends up eventually exploding basically into hundreds of locations around the world. Also was really kind of like a living saint. You could maybe count 10 people in the Catholic world that might have been above him in terms of like, these are people who are probably going to be saints when they die. Uh, and I considered him that way. He was incredibly influential uh, to me, especially in the years, which I'm sure we'll get into here, three, four years ago when I was considering becoming a Catholic and spending time with the Jesuit, Paul Fitterer in Seattle. Jennifer's very close friend, so I'm sure that's going to come back in. But also uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John, which focuses on disability and and like the love between John and Jesus. Just an incredible read. And then uh, his On Being interview, which has been rebroadcast multiple times, including before, after, before his death. And he, there was a moment personally for me that was very helpful in terms of my becoming more open to people of other religious faiths. Anyway, he was a hero of mine. That's all to say. And then literally on the day my son was born, February 22nd of this year, uh, somebody forwarded me an article that, that some shit went down. And basically, it's not like nobody knew, but it was finally confirmed that, in fact, uh, he had sexually abused a number of women in the context of spiritual direction. Now, to be clear from the outset, he, this was not the disabled people. N nothing, as far as I know, in his relationship with the residents of large communities had this abusive dynamic. This was with people who were under his care as his spiritual director or advisor. It got sexual. It got weird. He had some chances to repent and apologize that he did not take while he was alive. And I literally read this article 
sitting on the hospital couch, like between holding my day old son. So at that time, I started texting with Chris Hoke, my friend, about this. I felt like we were – I said, hey, I got to kind of wait. We waited a week. We ta- texted later. And he said, you know, Jennifer, should you should maybe bring her in as well. She worked there. She knew Sean. And so we're here to have a difficult and messy but hopefully helpful conversation about all of this. I'm very grateful that you guys are joining me. I'm also very grateful that we waited <laughs> a few months <laughs> because I don't know how that would have gone. So, all right. What I'd like from each of you, let's start with you, Jennifer, is just give us your own personal context. So, you know, I told people basically who you were, but in terms of your interaction with Jean Vanier and or his work, where are you coming from in your own autobiography? Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. I met the Seattle Arch community when I was a 19-year-old theology student at Seattle University. I became a volunteer I spent a couple summers living in the homes. The summer between my junior and senior year of college, I went and lived in Larsh, Ireland. And in 1989, um, just a few years after I graduated from college, I became the executive director of Larsh, Seattle. In 1990, Jean was in the United States giving a retreat at the University of San Diego for about 500 people. And he requested a meeting with me, which he tended to do with new directors. So I met him then. We hit it off very strongly, and we developed a friendship in which when he would come to the United States to do work, if I was present at those conferences, I functioned as his personal secretary quite a few times over about a period of a decade. So I was the executive director for eight years, had my son, and then transitioned into a role of the formation director of Large Seattle. And I've worked with Larsh all over the world. Actually, I do retreats and other programs for Larsh in Seattle and around the world. So total, it's been about 31 years working in Larsh. You know, like you, Dan, it's kind of funny. I can remember exactly where I was when I heard about Jean. It's like I'm a cancer survivor, and I can tell you exactly the moment, the date, the time where I was standing when I heard you have cancer. So I can picture where in my kitchen I was standing on December 13th, 2019. At lunchtime, my husband came home. He's the current executive director of our Seattle Arch community, Jerry Scully. And he said, I have some news for you, Jennifer. And he shared the news with me. And I think that I actually kind of became a little bit numb and dissociated. And I don't think I could even take it in at first. Um, an important context besides my friendship with Jean for, for me to share is that I'm a survivor of clergy abuse. And so I think the number of um, personal issues triggered for me that I was almost had a very flat response, but I came to understand in the days that unfolded that I was really traumatized, uh, devastated, angry, confused, heartbroken. Um, And like you, Dan, I'm really grateful that I've had more time to digest this before we talk about it, because I enter this conversation from quite a few different perspectives. And that has filled Jean out as a human being for me. And it's been really helpful to spend time with considering this from many different perspectives. So again, thanks for having me. Wow. I mean, I'm even more grateful (laughs) for you hearing that. And just to clarify, so our timeline. So in December, because your husband was the executive director of L'Arche, he sort of knew about the internal 
investigation before it hit the news wires, basically, right? Yes. Well, here's what we all knew. So I can't believe the exact timing, but about a year ago, Larsh International let all of its long-term members know that there was an inquiry and an exploration back to do with Père Thomas, who was Jean's spiritual mentor, and Jean as well. And to be honest, I believe what we all expected was that we were going to find out that possibly Jean knew more than he had admitted and had done nothing about it. That's what we expected. That's what we thought we'd be devastated by. Then what happened was in December, our national leadership had a phone call with directors only. And the directors were told, here's what's going to come out. And we need to be prepared for the release. And you are allowed to only tell your spouses and a spiritual advisor. Nobody else can know. So that was the other thing that was incredibly painful was Jerry and I had this information and we couldn't share it with our community. So people were so devastated and I'm the one who would facilitate the conversations around this. Literally we'd had one conversation and then the pandemic just, and now all of our homes are on lockdown and we can only talk to each other via zoom calls. So as you can imagine, one thing I can share with you is around the world, one of the things we are talking about in large via email, Zoom call, and other communication is that internationally, we're still reeling from the Jean Vanier revelations. Pandemic separated us all from being able to process it. Hmm. There are some large communities in the world who've lost core members to COVID-19. And so as you can imagine, the complexity of trying to even begin to integrate, this has been massive. So that's kind of the timeline of how we knew as communities. Yeah. Well, let's hear from you, Chris. Let's let's get uh, your background with Sean, uh, and also talk a little bit, you know, more about your ministry work and how you see that connected to uh, this discussion or his work. Yeah. As I was telling you earlier, um, I'm not sure I'm really a qualified uh, voice. Uh, well, then I'm certainly not. So you could feel good about that. <laughs> well, you're the host. Um, but uh, other than being your friend uh, in, here in the Northwest, I, I am, I'm the founder and director of Underground Ministries. And we work, um, I guess our mission statement is we open new relationships of embrace and trust between the incarcerated and the communities to which they return for our mutual transformation and resurrection. So this is building on my last 15 years of relationships I've built with uh, specifically the gang involved um, young men in Skagit County Jail and um, walking with them through their recovery from addictions and their false selves of, of violence and misogyny, uh, their, their journeys of healing and understanding their trauma and reckoning with the violence they've participated in, but also them becoming friends and um, brokering relationships with employers and baby mamas, and their kids, and, and sometimes faith communities and churches. And um, what we're doing now, uh, our main thing with Underground Ministries is something called One Parish, One Prisoner, where we're, um, we're creating a whole two-year journey and curriculum for faith communities to be in relationship with someone in prison. And so I guess in a way that I'm not, I did not know Jean Vanier directly, I, I work full-time with men who've done bad things. And some of the questions that the communities asking now are kind of our bread and butter of what we do. And secondly, um, 
Jean Vanier's writings have been pretty central to my understanding of helping myself and the now churches uh, understand the power dynamics in working with someone coming out of prison. So um, it was sad to me. I mean, within weeks of this news, I was, you know, copying verbatim beautiful portions of his book, Becoming Human, into some of our training materials for churches. The importance that I've received from him, and if anyone is has only heard about uh, his gross behavior and his hidden abuse of power and sin. If you want just a primer on, on the goodness of this dude, just listen to Krista Tippett's interview with him that she's replayed like more than any conversation yeah, in the history of her show. Yeah, being one, yeah. Um, but this is the passage that I return to constantly for teaching our congregations how to be in a better kind of relationship with someone coming out of prison, not, not the helper, not the white savior. Yeah. He says, the number one aspect of love is to reveal. The quote begins now. To reveal someone's beauty is to reveal their value by giving them time, attention, and tenderness. To love is not just to do something for them, but to reveal to them their own uniqueness. To tell them that they're special and worthy of attention. We can express this revelation through our open and gentle presence in the way we look at and listen to a person the way we speak to and care for someone. This revelation of value, the revelation that heals, takes time. When I think about what the men and women need returning from prison, I can't think of a better opening recipe than that. Yeah. So this is the context, right? This is a guy who really uh, seemed to be, and I think in many ways was, we can pretty safely say, like, like pretty plugged in to love, to God, to tenderness, I mean, Larsh is certainly uh, has to be the most successful, if you want to call it that, outreach program to the disabled in the history of mankind, right? Like, the, the, uh, this is not just like a megachurch pastor who had really good words, right? It's not, right. that's not what we're dealing with here. This yeah. is not dealing with a huckster. Yeah. It's not like a, oh, a silver tongued you know, whatever, who actually was banging gay prostitutes or something. That is not what's going on here. This is so much more complicated and so much more difficult because of the genuine value of his work and his and his life. Jennifer, I think we should talk about what uh, happened. I think we need a bit more about what happened. Uh, I'm, I'm reticent to have you be the one to share those details as a clergy sex, sex abuse survivor. Uh, but you are the closest. And so if you're okay with it, would you please share like, like the, with, um, Pierre Thomas, his, his mentor and what exactly do we know, or do we think went down with all that? Sure. Could I start by, well, there's two things. I'd love to preface my remarks today by especially acknowledging as a survivor that I do not speak for anyone else in Larsh in my thoughts today. And I especially do not speak for the women who have survived trauma directly from Jean Vignet. Because I know from my own experience, that trauma is so profound that I have no doubt whatsoever it has forever altered their experience of his words, his presence of Larsh International. And I have nothing but the deepest reverence for them. So that's really important to me to say and to acknowledge that I've had many, many, many years to deal with my own personal trauma. So that's one of my perspectives. And actually, um, let, let me just jump into because I, I do want to be really clear about this as well. 
this episode is not intended to be any sort of apology for his behavior. I mean, that should go without saying. But in case someone comes upon this that does not listen to the show regularly and is not aware of, you know, the kind of general stances that I take, like the this episode is about how do we take those that pain and and this abuse seriously with someone we would so so not expect it from right like so uh definitely just just to be clear like (laughs) we're not reading him early on because we're trying to like defend him in the court of public opinion nothing like that just in case there are some stragglers here yeah right well in the story of jean Vanier, first of all i want to thank you chris for that quote because it it just feels so synergistic because there's nothing i've quoted more from jean than to say to love someone is to reveal to them their beauty. Like that is just my number one quote of Jean and it is transformative and the many myriad of healing directions that one quote takes, takes a person in is extraordinary. So thank you for sharing that. Um, In Jean's life story, he is the son of the former governor general of Canada. And he told a story very famously of going to his father when he was about 11 years old uh, he was aware of the war, and he said to Dad, and he had to meet with his father in the in the study. It was very formal, and he said, Dad, I want to join the British Navy. And Jean always said that his father's response changed his life because rather than looking at him and saying, for, God, for goodness sake, you're 11 or you're 12, whichever age it was, how ridiculous, his father looked at him and said, I trust you. And from that story, Jean would talk about the place of being trusted and how trust is foundational for the development of who we are in our character. So his father said those words, I trust you. And then he kind of mentored him for the next year or two, didn't let him go off and join the Navy at 11 or 12, but he actually did leave home and join the British Navy at 13 years old. That's a piece of context. That's really important to me because I have a son who's 24 and I can look through the stages of Jean's life. And I have a sense of what it means developmentally for a 13 year old boy to go and join the British Navy. I mean, it's mind blowing. So he joined the British Navy. He was in the second world war. He was a naval officer on a ship called the Magnificent at a very early age. And he mentioned that over time, he noticed that he was on deck in the middle of the night with his Bible, looking up at the stars. And he realized his calling was no longer the Navy, but something else. So he left the Navy in 1950. Uh, He got a PhD, I believe, in philosophy. But meanwhile, background to his life, there was this uh, French priest, Père Thomas, who actually had been the spiritual director to Jean Vanier's mother, Mammy Vanier, and she somehow introduced them. And Jean got involved probably in his early 20s, I'm thinking, at about 22, with this movement that Père Thomas started called Lo Vive. And if you or your listeners are ever interested, it's fascinating to look up and study Lviv. I had no idea what a remarkable place of intellectual exchange and healing it was. Founded in France on a farm immediately following World War II. And so young people and scholars and poets and historians um, and thinkers from all over the world who had been devastated by the Second World War were gathering in this place 
Lviv, where Per Tomah was their spiritual leader. And for all of these people who had found the devastation of the war in France so crushing, Lviv was intoxicating, really, in the promise and hope and spirituality it offered. So Per Tomah had a lot of spiritual power. So I think now, for me, context is knowing Jean talked about at the end of the war, being in France where his parents were living and seeing the trains arriving from Auschwitz and other places and the emaciated bodies coming off the train. So Jean was probably, I'm guessing, what, 20, 22 years old when this was happening. And this is what he's witnessing. And in this context, he meets Père Thomas and joins this semi-radical community who want to heal the world of Lviv in France. Am so I Jean, right to think that there's a kind of a proto 60s hippie bohemian thing going on there as well? That it's like yes. a bit ahead of its time culturally in that sense? Yes, because what Loviv believed amongst many things was that the Second World War forever taught them that the constructs and the way of society was a complete failure. Yeah. And many people were so mentally traumatized and their belief was we're going to work the land. We're going to farm together. We're going to create a school of the heart. We're going to do deep reflection. We're going to make art and all of through all of these things, we're going to heal ourselves and society. And so people went under the goodness of their heart. And what you need, what was later revealed is Per Thomas began his abuse of women in that context. Yeah, it, it's, um, as an American, it's hard to think about that movement without thinking about the communes of the late 60s yes. and 70s. It's almost like because World War II hit Europe 25 years earlier than Vietnam hit the U.S., that it, it, there's a very in-kind kind of yes. reaction. The way that yes. they responded to World War II is the way that Americans responded to Vietnam, basically. Yes. And, uh, and so civil you- unrest and stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And so I, now, as I say, I, I come part of my lens is I come as a mother who saw what an 18 year old and then a 20 year old young man was like in 22. And I also come as a daughter of a father who fought in the second world war and wasn't diagnosed with PTSD until his seventies. And I bring all this and I imagine Jean having lived through that war from 13 to 20 and then coming under the thrall of this priest with this vision and this passion and this promise about an alternate reality. And I think to myself, um, given that Jean lived such a bifurcated life in terms of spiritual truths that were so profound and so integrated seemingly on every level, but this one, what kind of, what could explain that kind of bifurcation? I can never know for sure. Other than presuming he had PTSD and more damage from the war than anyone would have ever known. And in this context, goes to Lobiv, gets to know Per Tama, and what was revealed, you know, a decade or more ago, Per Tama is Per Tama had dozens of victims that go back decades. What exactly did that entail? So my understanding is that it's um, to use indelicate language, some weird sex stuff revo- involving the Virgin Mary. 
Right. Well, the way I read it described it was called description. No, but it was described as pseudo mysticism. So as you may know, Dan, even from your conversations with Jesuit Paul Fitterer, one of the really profound things that Catholic spirituality offers is deep mysticism, which is often the appeal to many people to convert to our tradition. That was the appeal for me. Yeah, partly. Right. So we have this depth tradition around contemplative prayer. And Père Thomas came across as this modern-day mystic, I guess. And he also had this great devotion to Mary, but in a very humanizing way, not just Mary's kind of um, sterilized, but as a very real and empowered woman. So from what I understand, Père Thomas used this pseudo-mysticism to claim to women for whom he provided spiritual direction that somehow a sexual encounter with him was connected to a mystical experience, which, yeah. yeah, it makes, it's, it's nauseating, isn't it, Dan? And it's like um, every, it's like every cult ends up with something like this, where it just so happens that the male leader of the cult has figured something out about sex. You know, yeah. it's like, it's too convenient. Yeah. It's so, it's, it's so upsetting for that reason. Yeah, and it, like it's, all it's, it's like a bastardization of something really beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you look at what Père Thomas did, or even uh, you, your listeners should know, if they go on the L'Arche International website, the full report there has quite a bit of information okay. and some quotes from Jean's, Jean Vanier's victims, which is very illuminative if they want to, to read that. But in both cases, and in my experience as a survivor of clergy abuse and all the research and everything I know about it from fellow survivors, these predators, which, which clearly Père Thomas was, and to a lesser degree, but for, for real, Jean Vanier was, they're artful in recognizing vulnerability. And so certainly the women that Père Thomas abused, these were a lot of women with profound um, vulnerabilities and brokenness, whether it was mental health issues Rejection from family, trauma from the war, low self-esteem, recent parental death. And in reading the stories, a few of them, of the women who were abused by Jean, they too spoke of incredible vulnerability Hmm. that put them at risk to be manipulated that way. And this is the long, sad saga and story of people who use, use others for their sexual gratification. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of angles here. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me is it's worth noting, I think, and unfortunately, that religious organizations do not tend to have the kind of structures in place to basically uh, punish this kind of stuff. So, for instance, I'm training to become a licensed psychologist. I'll have my doctorate in four years or so. And uh, if complaints come against me that I am misusing my power with clients who are vulnerable from trauma, I I will lose my license. I can be sued. I can be criminally tried, right? Um, Because I basically am signing up and agreeing not to do that. And I'm receiving a lot of training around it. Uh, It's, you know, power dynamics are a massive part of our training in our program. Um, this is one of the ways that I have become secularized, I think, yes. increasingly as a Christian growing older is like, oh, some of these like non-religious institutions have better stuff in place. Like 
Uh, we're recording this the day after the missions episode. The, in, the quagmire of modern missions came out where we talked about how these international missions organizations are really good places for bad people to hide and continue yes. working because there's very little visibility. So I, I have a kind of an unanswerable hypothetical question, uh, but that I'd like to offer to you guys. Maybe, Chris, if you have thoughts, you could go first of like, it, how do ministries replicate that kind of uh, accountability that like the APA has, for instance, or the medical board or the bar association has. And is that the answer? Or, you know what I'm saying? Like how, what do we make of the fact that there, there seems to be this real problem that pastors, clergy, Catholic and Protestant alike, they have all this enormous power, the same amount as maybe a doctor or a therapist has or something with, in a lot of cases, basically no guardrails. I mean, it's funny that you said international missions organizations are really good places for bad people doing bad things to hide. Because as I'm doing a lot of digging in my family story and working on a, a kind of weird braided memoir right now, that's the dark seedbed I keep coming back to. Is um, you know, my, my dad was a missionary kid, um, and I and I don't know if many people listening know the term, you know, MKs, but there's a whole culture of missionary kids and TCKs, third culture kids. Um, and we, we end up finding each other. And then a year into the friendship, we're like, oh, you are, you are too. There's just kind of this deeper psychic um, alignment. Um, and as I've listened to more of these stories and asked more uncomfortable questions based on what I've heard from the last five people in my family or other folks, I'm, I'm seeing that, I don't know, what you just said summarizes what I've been learning for the last five years perfectly. That there's not a, there's not a lot of press on it yet, but that's that's where, yeah, religious organizations with little accountability and even thinner threads of contact or oversight, um, where they're just grateful to have someone out there in the field, as they say. Um, so whether it's a hippie camp, whether it's uh, missionaries, um, that folks um, when there's not much oversight, their disease can um, rage. Something that we've all become more aware of around the, the systemic racism conversation after the George Floyd killing is this idea of intent versus impact and that um, you can have a negative impact without having negative intent. So, Jennifer, so I, I don't know that this is true, but let's assume for, for a second that it is that at whatever point in his life he comes to Père Thomas and he's got whatever damage he has, he's got whatever personality he has that he was raised with whatever he got from the weird formality of his father. Uh, this seems like so alive to him. And so he buys in hook, line and sinker. And maybe even over time, he challenges some other things and changes some other things that he disagrees with or whatever. But let's say he never ends up disagreeing with the, the sex, Mary stuff and he's celibate. So this is, ends up being his sexual outlet or something like that. Let's um, stipulate that his intentions are, this works. This actually works. I know that people frown on it. I know it's a little bit unorthodox, but I believe it works. Does the evidence allow that reading? Is that actually a plausible reading of what happened that would explain the discrepancy between his sexual actions and the rest of his actions? Well, you know, for me, Dan, great question, but I would say no, absolutely not. I would read it as self-delusion, and here's why. So I'm a trained spiritual director. I, did, I didn't mention that. I do other work besides L'Arche. And a principle I bring to everything, to myself, but also to everyone I pro provide direction for is, would you put it in the light? Will you tell the story? That is the 
greatest discernment tool that ever existed? And if the answer is no, it, then it's a secret. And if it's a secret, you know something is awry. Now, of course, there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. So when I say, when you put it, would you put this in the light? I don't even necessarily mean before the entire world. But sure. would you put it in the light almost in front of yourself, in front of God, in front of your spouse or clergy? or And clearly, these were secrets John carried. And those secrets, that's telling. But I, is it okay if I answer your last question? Because do, yeah. So my experience of clergy abuse happened in college. It was a clergy professor, and I was literally pushed towards him by other clergy and my uh, theology teachers because they told me I was so lucky that he wanted to mentor me. And what I know now was months and months and months of grooming before he uh, made his move. And thank goodness um, I was able to extricate myself relatively quickly, but incredible damage was done. But what came of that, that happened in uh, 1984. When I, I had repressed that for years, when I finally dealt with it in 2002, I was later asked by the Jesuits to be on their very first review board of clergy abuse for the diocese. And I went through extensive training with Monica Applewhite, I think is her name, and safety training. And just so you know, all of the United States Catholic archdiocese require these trainings now. And the trainings are excellent. Furthermore, I've been through years of extensive training because I work with a vulnerable population. And so I've had excellent training at the state level, and I've had yeah. it as a spiritual director. And what I've learned through all of that is one of the greatest challenges of all the training is our individual internal resistance to ever believing somebody we know and care about could do these things. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so we're all taught if we do the training, we're taught red flag behaviors, right? And we're taught that red flag behaviors do not mean for sure that a person's an abuser. It could mean they're clueless. But when you see the behaviors, you check them out. So here's what's so crazy, Dan and Chris, and an honest confession that I'll, you know, I, I shake my head at myself. So I've been watching for red flag behaviors because of my training for years. And I've, I've, I've changed things because of a person's behavior. Or I've disallowed a volunteer. But I was in therapy for five years, finally, about what happened to me. And to my therapist, I said one day, these exact words, it's probably in the case files. Some of the way Jean Vanier treats me reminds me of my abuser, but without the sex. Yeah. And I had never seen, he had, so I worked very closely with him and he was very kind and very affirming, but Jean was very kind of, um, he could be kind of dictatorial in his loving way. He liked to tell people what to do. And I'm a pretty independent thinker. And I started as the years went on disagreeing with him about certain things or saying, no, like when I wanted to step down from being director to be, focused on being a mother that really bothered him. He wanted me to stay. And I said, no. So the more independent I became, he would do these crazy things. Like sometimes give me the cold shoulder at a meeting in front of 50 people. And it brought back memories of how that clergy abuser treated me when I set boundaries. And yeah. So I look at that and I say, good God, Jennifer Kelly, you said the words, he reminds me of my abuser, but without the sex. And to that end, I have to say, I did speak about his behavior with a couple different people in L'Arche over the years to say, this is really painful. I find it shaming. I find it. And it was always kind of spiritualized. 
like, okay, well, Jennifer, this is an invitation for you to grow up and become more independent. So what I also Ugh. ran into was the deep resistance yeah, because he was seen as a saint. And so then I spent the next 10 years thinking, well, I'm never going to tell anybody that sometimes Jean doesn't treat me really well because they'll wonder what's wrong with me. And again, that mirrors yeah. the way clergy abusers isolate their victims. And so all I can say, Dan, to your question is, it's just remarkable that predators tend to be drawn to communities of trust where good people want to do good for the world and see the best in others. And then it becomes very hard for those communities, for most members to ever think that quote unquote, one of our good people um, could be capable. So anyways, that's, that's no, a long winded answer to your no. question. And I'm sorry, but it's, it's just so complicated. No, I mean, it's almost like instead of being wise as serpents and innocent as doves, a lot of ministries become innocent as doves and very self-consciously and aware that they are innocent as doves and forgetting the wisest serpents part, right? Uh, which is, you know, exactly. to use Jesus's language. Yeah. No, that's I mean, that's incredible. And and I thank you for disabusing me of my uh, <laughs> my possible way out of like, well, maybe he was just weird about this one thing. Uh, he knew he had a secret. That's my guess. Yeah. So, okay. Actually, so this is probably a good place, Chris, to bring in some of your conversations. So when we were texting um, closer to the time of the article, you had basically a, a conversation with an older white male who was fairly close with Sean. We're not going to name him for his own sake. And then you mm -hmm. also had conversations with two female friends. And so yeah. uh, anything you want to say, but I, I know especially there's a connection there between uh, what, what Jennifer and I were just talking about and your conversation with the, with the older white male. Yeah. And I guess I need to say as, as a starter, my interest in even saying any of this is not about trying to figure out Jean, but as a, as a overdue, as a, a really big test case where we can work on the dynamics that are happening in every town, yeah. in every church, yep. in every hero project yes. we have. Yep. Um, and that we can work on this one. Um, I guess that's how I'd, I need to talk about it. I invite any listener to not just try to like um, play super sluice with, with this one totally. French spiritual leader, but to, to work on this story in and out, turn it inside out, know that study the different responses because all those different responses are in us. So, so one, of, one of my former mentors was very close with him. And would, even in the last several years, he had been over at, uh, to France and, and, offered some, some teaching and presentations at Larch with, with Jean staff. Um, and so when the news came out, I, I sent a, a text message to this, um, this person I used to be close with just saying, I don't know, I didn't say anything other than I know y'all are close. You're, you're on my mind, my heart. And then the next day, this person started to kind of process with me versus text message. And I'd be honest, it, it bummed me out that this is a person with a, a theology and a political edge that I've always loved but it just, I think I shared some of it with you, Dan, and you were just like, yeah, it just sounds like a typical boomer response. That's how you said it. I'm like, oh, yeah. It's a and people who don't know you should know that for you to say a political edge I loved is like me saying, oh, that's so interesting. It's the highest compliment. Yeah. I mean, this this person is is really dedicated to the the priority and presence of God among the most powerless in the world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I'm, I'm aware yeah. of some of his work and fantastic. Yeah. So this um, is not, we're not just talking about some asshole, you know, 
who happens to be no. an evangelical elder or something like that. This no, is a guy no. doing good work in the world. Yeah. Amazing work. Um, but was close with Jean and I think was probably looking to Jean to be a, kind of like a father figure. Um, and who can blame uh, him? Right. If you're, yeah. you know, if you don't know that stuff and you're close to a living saint, I mean, it's, it's, totally. it's, 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 it's an unavoidable gravitational pull. But basically the response was first off, just questioning the allegations. Well, we don't know if those things were never f- fully true. You know, he's not here to defend himself. And, and yeah, and the, the one that most frustrated me, but I wasn't going to argue with him because he's working out his own grief and I'm just a spectator in this. I was just kind of, uh-huh, uh-huh. But was, uh, you know, he never claimed to be a saint. Other people did that to him. He was always very upfront about that. He's, he's, a, he's a sinner too. And I think that one pissed me off because I've, I don't know Jean, but I've been around a lot of men in religious leadership that think they are being accountable by just saying the most token, useless thing ever. Like, well, I'm a sinner. It's like saying I'm a human being. Like when your dad slaps your mom and then turns to you and says, what? I'm a human being. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that humility? No, you kind of want to hit him even worse. Be like, what, what, a, what, a, what a slimy... It's a smokescreen is what it is. It's, yeah. it's like using, it's using approved in-group language to put the matter to rest. Is what it, I, yes. That's how I see it. So, the, the, so coming away from some of those conversations, again, this is, doesn't need to be about Jean specifically, but it got me really thinking, okay, what, why does this upset me? For me, I keep coming back to accountability, that I work with a lot of men that have done bad things. And so for me, it's not about being the judge of what's good or what's not good. But oftentimes, when I work with men who are incarcerated, they've almost been overly accountable. They've undergone scrutiny, prosecutors, full discoveries. When you, a discovery is like the fat file of everything that's found against you. They've gone through full investigations. They've, been, they've lost their job. They've lost their family. They've lost any reputation if they ever had one. Um, and they've oftentimes been thrown in a civic underworld in human warehouses for years and years and years, oftentimes for drug possession, for ways of just medicating their own pain sometimes for gun possession, sometimes for beating someone up, sometimes for gang warfare, sometimes for domestic violence is the worst for me because I'm closer to that in my story. But they've been held accountable and oftentimes been beaten three times more than they need to be. And then on the other hand, when people who are in power have really done, uh, have done bad things that need to be reckoned with, how quickly they can slide out of it and how quickly they can apply the gospel to themselves or a version of the gospel of a kind of quick instant forgiveness that they've never given to people who, who are in court or who are in jail. Um, it's kind of like a scandalous grace. They're so happy to give themselves, but I don't buy it because they've never given it to others nor advocated for it in society. So it feels imbalanced. It feels slimy and it doesn't restore trust. It is a little different though than the Jean case because he did extend that grace to everybody basically. Right? So he, it's not, in that particular sense, it was not hypocritical of him. Uh, no, not, not of him. In that not sense, of him. yeah. I'm, so I'm saying for why it bothered me, again, moving away from just the specifics of Jean, sure. but just all of our responses when we hear about people yeah. that I we love. What I, the reason I'm pushing the nuance is because his case for me feels different, right? Like I sort of am aware of the movements of the standard uh, leader who ended up being fraudulent, who ended up being an abuser who ended up being kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing. What's so interesting to me 
and and challenging about the Jean Vanier case is that it doesn't fit those patterns as well, right? Like like Bill Hybels might just not be that good of a guy. Like I I don't know him. I don't know anything. I have no inside information on Bill Hybels, leader of the biggest megachurch in America and the big leadership summit. But he could totally just be like a jackass who learned all the right ways to speak to evangelicals, amassed a ton of power that, you know, like uh, he might not be that way. He might be 50 percent that way. Nothing would surprise me. You could tell me any anything. And I'll go. Sure. Right. Vanier is surprising. Right. Because of this other stuff. Um, right. And that's what's so it's that's what's so interesting about this case that it's it's getting at a, a different dynamic than all the other big men who have been toppled down, rightfully so, get at. You know what I mean? Well, uh, for me, so I'm, what I began speaking to is just what's general is noticing our different impulse reactions yeah. that are that are echoes and endemic in how we've dealt with power yeah. and our favorite heroes and our dads and our moms and our buddies. Um, so yes, I've not gotten into the, why this is particularly difficult with Vanier's beauty and his goodness, which makes it a really painful paradox. But as I've gone back to some of Vanier's writing since then, I've thought about, there's a connection between his hidden illness and abuse and harm and the very, and precisely what he taught about. He taught about the abuse of power. And so for me, there's a unique, almost, almost integratedness as opposed to guys who are just like, you know, blowhard fundamentalists that are just talking about, you know, throw away, throw away people with different sexual attitudes. You know, yeah, you, Ted, you know, right. the, the Ted classic- is is railing against the gays and doing coke with a gay hooker in hotel rooms on the side. It's like that's the like tale as old as time sort of comical version of it. But you're yes. saying there's actually maybe something like that going on here well, around power and vulnerability and stuff. Yeah. If like there's on one end, there's total integration. And on the other hand, there's complete splitting. And I know you dig these terms as a psychology student, Dan, uh, and where we're splitting and projection, which is what you just described with yeah. Ted Haggard, right? Which is the, the fundamentalist caricature of the human disease, which is I can't tolerate my shadow. I can't tolerate my pain, my hypocrisy, my wounds. So I have locked it up inside and I've created an internal prison. And the way that I keep away any reminder, well, or basically I deal with people in society the way that have these problems, the way that I deal with it myself, I, re, I, I condemn, I punish and I repress. Yeah. And so a lot of underground ministries is based on not just the organizing the work of communities to do reentry work. But we're trying to superimpose how we deal with our internal world is how we deal with the social body. How we deal, getting church members to see, we have to do contemplative prayer is actually to do internal prison ministry. That Mm. it's only when we can embrace what we have repressed within ourselves that we won't need repressive structures like prisons. So the inner work and the social revolution need to happen in tandem. So, I mean, actually, when I, when I did contemplate, I learned contemplative prayer in Folsom Prison. I went with Ray Leonardini to do uh, his centering prayer groups in Folsom Prison in California. And when I stood out there at the famous big stony gates, you know, and, and walk the line where uh, Johnny Cash goes in, I noticed, I'm like, what's that building? And they're like, oh, this prison has its own postal code. And so mail is going in and out. Most prisons don't have their own postal code. They're a tiny municipality. And do you know the name 
of the tiny postal code, which is Folsom Prison? No. You, you send your letters to Repressa, California. <laughs> what? If there was no. anything more poetically... Yeah, that's wow. the article for Sun. I don't know it. That's the article for Sun Magazine. I started four years ago, but still haven't finished. Wow! Yeah. Um, but it's was, it was more aha for me that got me thinking. So as I went down with three, four, five layers of old gates and checkpoints, and um, some prison rooms we've all seen because every movie that has a prison riot uses this one hallway um, in Fols- old Folsom Prison, and then we get down to the very bottom. We did began our centering. Uh, I realized what we had just, what we're trying to do in, inside is what I had just done. I descended into the, the social, the America's subconscious. All, all to say what the Bill Hybels, the classic projection model that you just uh, suggested, I think is the classic, uh, you know, the people that are most wanting to see people burn in hell are the ones that are treating parts of themselves that way. The people that are, have most sexual problems are the ones that are most anti-gay. Shouldn't surprise us, but... Vanier, there's a total, there's an, there's an elegant, all, near integration in his issues that have come to light in what he taught about, which was the abuse of power. So for me, I don't know, I just see it as like closer to the spectrum. He's maybe he's because an older generation that there's still that s- culture of secrecy. Um, but I feel like it would have been his testimony would have been explosive if he could have integrated with his teaching. Yeah. Yes. I am speaking from experience. Yeah. I about know me. The, yeah. I I know the inner contours of abuse of power because I walk that line daily and I have stepped over that line many times and I'm working those details out in my life. Yeah, there's a missed yeah. opportunity there and it's it's really it's really tragic because he he won't be a saint now. It's not like it worked to be silent in in that sense, right? Like so how much more of a restorative Christ-like story for him to go, you know, I'm getting older. I've been secretive about this. Like, you know, this is what I did and, and this is what I learned and here's my amends, you know, like, ah, what a, what a missed opportunity. And, and so the, the, the personal question for me, this isn't a question, Jennifer, you can respond to this or, or just jump in however you want. But for me, it's like, but if he was the best, pretty much. And he couldn't do that. Now, I feel like I'm getting a little nuance here that he, he wasn't the best. And that's actually right, you know, way right. helpful. But the way I had thought of it was like, but if Von Ye can't even, then how the hell is anybody? Although we, we've been talking about Paul Fitterer, you know, right. our mutual friend. So, okay, here's a question for you, Jennifer, answer it or don't, but I wanted to get it out there. Maybe it's impossible to be the public leader of something large that you start and that you allow to become large and that you stay the leader of in any kind of traditional sense and not have some shit like this. Like you mentioned that he could be a bit dictatorial. Well, if I'm trying to answer the question, so why did he continue to be in charge of this thing for so long? Well, maybe because he's a bit dictatorial. Like is everybody that way? That is called that wants to lead and start their own big thing. Uh, it, I'm feeling um, of, of it's frustrating. It feels like there's no uh, solution to this. That it's like baked in to the kinds of leaders we inevitably lionize. That they right. can't do the thing that we lionize them for doing. They end. They can't actually end up doing it ever. That's my cynical take right now. That's 
that's a great question, Dan. And, you know, I don't have an answer, but, you know, again, in the background, the sidelines, some of us who knew Jean and who Larch for years, he wasn't my model of an integrated human. He was not ever my model of it. This because is so what helpful I, for me. What I personally. would have told you, what I would have told you, I many times contrasted my deep personal friendship with Paul Fitterer Right. And my friendship with Jean Vanier, and I would have told anybody who asked that Jean is unknowable, that he doesn't get to know you on a personal level. Uh-huh. That should have been a red flag. Like he can be warm. He could be loving. He could be fun to be with. But you never really got to know Jean. So even what Chris was just referencing about, you know, wishing that he could have uh, kind of put some meet on the bones of that humility in terms of Mm -hmm, the talk mm -hmm. about brokenness and vulnerability. What's so interesting was, especially in his later years, more and more, but he always did it. Jean claimed that imperfection and vulnerability, but he never put even a shred of meat on the bones of it. There was still a public posturing. So, but here's something, if I could just kind of share with you something that Chris triggered for me really clearly about what energizes me about this topic. And, Chris referenced himself about the bigger question, like, this isn't just about Jean, but what about the bigger issues for us in our world? I look at what Chris was saying about his mentor and how he responded to Jean. And after the revelations came out, I saw two things happen really strongly. One was to minimize, which especially as a survivor, I know the toxic and devastating power of that. That's what kept me silenced for years. And the women in my circle who were abused by the same clergy person, there was no me too movement that protected us. And any coming forward was a horrifying experience. There was no, you know, it was awful. So I know the power of the minimization and people that were my personal friends minimized. And I learned to shut up and keep it to myself. So there's the minimization, but then there's the erasure, the actual, I believe it. And so therefore I'm going to condemn erase, distance, um, obliterate everything of Jean Vignet. And it was all over uh, talk shows and podcasts and articles. Um, publishers were tripping over each other, making public proclamations. They were coming into my inbox in my email, letting me know that Jean Vignet's works have been shredded and we no longer have his books. And I found myself, especially as a woman who also works in prisons, I hadn't mentioned that, but my work in prisons, my understanding of what I shared about Jean as a veteran and being a mother and being a survivor and all these kind of things like the creation of a star kind of having this cataclysmic reaction in me and fundamentally inside saying both of those responses are BS and neither of them, neither of them reveal a human being and neither of them help me or our constituents in large or people around the world figure out what the hell is this about and what does it have to say for me in my journey and how can it be healing? So where it brought me to is the radical invitation to a synthetic life where I do the hard work of synthesis and integration and integrity and shadow work. And in doing that work, fully claim my responsibility and my power. So, for example, one of the most heartbreaking things that I heard in our own large community or for peop- from people I've mentored or young Jesuits who sent me emails that broke my heart was they said, I don't believe I can believe in anyone anymore. And I thought to myself, no, 
no, like my fundamental call as a middle-aged woman, especially now, and a spiritual director and a woman who goes behind the walls is I got to do my work so people are safe in my mouth, in my head, in my heart, in my hands, in my work, which doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but I owe it. I especially owe it to the people coming up behind me who are younger, to children and friends and teenagers and young adults. Like, So the thought that we would, because of Jean Vanier, throw up our hands and say, I can't trust anyone, rather than those like yourself, Dan, who are going into psychology or the work Chris is doing, the rest of us doubling down and saying, wow, this is scary, this revelation. I have to be more committed than ever to do my work. And I just want to say, I've, I've had this great gift in my life. We have this Catholic chaplain at MCC. Her name is Gloria Kempton. And she's been studying and doing the work of Joseph Campbell in the hero's journey for 25 years. She was teaching it in prison. And I sensed that between the revelations of Jean Vignet and the pandemic and everything else that was going on, that we needed an opportunity to have a hero's journey class in large for anyone who wanted it. So 12 of us started three months ago, and we've been meeting weekly for two hours. And each week, Gloria spends an hour of teaching, part of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. And then we spend the other hour journaling, talking, sharing. A couple of concepts have been super helpful for me. And of course, Campbell's work was influenced by Jung, was the concept of the tragic hero and coming to accept that Jean Vanier in the end was a tragic hero. So the heroism is still there. Um, what he wrote, what he spoke, what Chris read, those things changed my life forever. Mm-hmm. And the integration of his work has changed me for the better. And I have to continue to claim that. But I also can recognize now he was a tragic hero. And as you said, he'll never be sainted. He didn't, he didn't leave behind on this planet. Like I always tell people, do the work now, then you get to leave it here. And whatever comes next, you've shed that shit. You know, you've let it go. And my heart breaks thinking he didn't let it go here in this planet. I don't know what that means, but he had to carry it. And that's tragic. And then the other concept of Joseph Campbell's that's been really helpful for me is the concept of a dark mentor. And what I realize now is Jean was my mentor for many years, but he was also at times a dark mentor. Because dark mentors are unfree with their protégés frequently. They have their own agenda. And so you look at what Jean, I'm sure his spiritual direction with those women started out with good intent. But then he began to use them for his own, um, some of his own gratification and probably was super self-delusional and and in self-denial. Follow up for you, Chris, on that. As someone who is the head of a ministry and who has a power differential um, as part of your life's work between you and the people that you are working with, I'm, I'm curious how you have internalized this. Basically, I want to I want to spend a few more minutes on what the lessons are for for people like you and I with and, and Jennifer with public ministry. We are available for people in some way. Right. And like have some kind of public presence. And then I want to shift to like, what are the lessons for people not in a position of public leadership as they discern who to listen to and what to trust from public people? So before we move to that, I'm, I'm curious if you have anything and then I'll, I'll see if I have any thoughts myself as, as I've processed this stuff. 
Yeah, let me let me pa- wait just a second on the <laughs> how how this lands for me as as a founder of a tiny little organization. Sure. Yeah. No. And just to build on what Jennifer's saying about the erasure, I think we're just we're just learning all sorts of important categories here. One is one is accountability that I feel like as someone who is in spiritual leadership, they need to just they don't need to be erased, but they need to be immediately removed from power. Yes. And so no kind of like spiritual anthropological nuance we're getting into should ever be an excuse to leave someone in power. Yeah. If you, yes. if you abuse your power, you got to have a long road back yes. to relearning that power, to regaining those keys, to rebuild, basically rebuilding trust in an institutional form. Yep. Um, Cause I'm dealing with situations like this in Skagit Valley where people whose names I can't deal with. Like, we're like, Chris, why are you judging this person? We're like, I don't judge them as a brother, but we, we, hands down, this person can't be in leadership right now. They need to yeah. be doing their own work before they're healthy enough. Otherwise, you're infecting people. It's that simple, right? Like a doctor, if the doctor has is hiding their, uh, um, their COVID and sneaking into the office every day and working on people, I'd be like, no, you need to be removed and you need to get well before basic level of wellness before you're yeah. physician, heal thyself. Yes. Amen. Yes. Absolutely. And so accountability, transparency, that I think people in power should be leading with transparency. That's why I think people are just loving Nadia Bowles-Weber because, yeah, I mean, she kind of, there's a lot of tattoos and potty mouth, which I, I personally like tattoos and potty mouth. But, <laughs> I, can but really, I can attest that you love tattoos and potty mouth. But I mean, yeah, it's, it's what actually helped me feel safe in the jail years ago, as opposed to all the, the shiny evangelical yeah. language I grew up, I grew up with. I knew there was oh, yeah. so much dark darkness going on underneath the surface. At least these guys were just kind of saying, Hey, I'm, well, yeah, I'm I, if, if I've spent a lot of time with someone and they don't swear, I'm not sure I trust them. Great. It's funny. I'm exactly. similar. Yeah. That's why I ended up cussing in the jail. Cause people thought, are you just trying to be cool? I'd be like, no. Cause that's how I talk with my friends Yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm going to go in and like put this little veil over my personality. So they that's think that's why I else. cuss on a faith podcast because that's how I talk. That's great. <laughs> so now Soren so, might with, change with, that as I, if we get a swear jar and all that, you know, we'll see, uh, <laughs> but he can't understand it yet. So I'm just letting him fly around him for the Yeah. Moment. But it breaks down Dan. Cause we held that good till our son was about 15 or I don't know, 12. And then the swears came back and now he's yeah. a, healthy swear or two. There's no way around it. Anyway, Chris, go ahead. Sorry. So, so to say about Nadia, I, I think why she's such a refreshing spiritual voice right now is because she talks about her alcoholism. She talks about her anger, even, even to, I mean, it's normally refreshing for those of us coming from conservative fundamentalist backgrounds, but it's such a gentle rebuke to the self-righteousness of the left as well. Yeah. Oh yeah. Where she'll be like, yeah, don't you hate prideful, arrogant mother <laughs> like me? <laughs> And, and she'll always, like a good memoir writer, kind of self-indict first. So I think that's what all leadership should practice. Yeah. And, and everyone knows a good sermon, you know, yeah. doesn't make yourself the hero, but makes yourself the, the sick one who's learning. Um, but, but, but about erasure, I think that what's what, what happened with the publishers taking him off the shelves and people wanting to erase him, for me, I, I, it's just the same thing as, as um, lionizing someone. It's, it's, if someone's not an angel, well, then they're a demon. It's still a really immature understanding of human beings. It's after black you, and white. Yeah. It's like fundamentalism. Said, yeah. Right. Take them out of accountability. Yes. But then after that, right. we have a complex person here Yeah, and to erase people is the same thing as what we're doing in prisons. We're trying to erase people. Prisons are about erasure that we can't deal with the problems or the violence 
the sexual um, pain and domestic violence going on, a rampant addiction, racism. We just try to erase him. And America is great at erasing. And that's why we have a, the most, the biggest mass industrial complex ever. I don't think it's just about capitalism. It's yeah. capitalism that is monetized erasure. Well, it can't um, only be capitalism because the private prisons are like 10% or something. I mean, there's something else going on, right? Yeah. So I think, I think I wouldn't want us to do, even if we're coming from the left, to do the same thing what prisons do is to say we can't deal with complexity or humanity or a shadow. We're going to erase it as opposed to how do we integrate? How do we learn? How, yeah. how are like for me, when I hear about Jean Vanier, I, I would hope, um, at first I was ashamed of this, man. I'm like, no, that's probably the healthiest response is to have a little bit of like, it <clears throat> uh, could be me. And yeah, I think that's right. good. That, I think that's what we would want folks in churches to see with folks in prison is to be like, that could be me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I've been I'm, thinking I'm, about I'm this. I'm a notch or two away on the human spectrum from this person. Yeah. How do I not be like, well, I, because if we erase him, if we overpunish, what it's going to do is it's going to, we're just going to double down on a culture of repression. Every person out there that has an issue, maybe close to Jean, yeah, they should be removed from leadership. And, right. but they, they, they should, we should create a place where they can move forward and be more integrated, whereas everyone else is being like, oh, wow, I need to start deleting all files from my computer, bullying my witnesses even more. If we just do repression, we're modeling repression. Like as I train to become a therapist and in some of our like ethics courses and stuff, we talk about like there will be people of the gender that you're attracted to that will be attracted to you and you have a power over them but by nature of your relationship as their therapist. And the worst thing that I could do in that training is go, yeah, but that's not going to happen to me. That's the worst thing I can do. Right. I need to right. be like on the lookout for that. Of course, this is going to happen. Of course, I will be tempted to exploit that power relationship at yeah. some point in my life. I'm a human being. Uh, and to, to pretend that I've got my shit together enough that that'll never be an issue is the height of folly, right? Yeah. You know what? It reminds me of um, what I said earlier, but it's, it's for people who are going to be in leadership or mentoring others, or walking with others, as Chris said, to do the work in concrete ways of putting things in the light. Because I know when I, years ago, did the training on safety training with the archdiocese, but also did a lot of reading about sex offenders because the population of people with developmental disabilities, the abuse rates are terrifying. Like they're over 90%, so wanting to keep Mm. our people safe. The dynamic that was really clear was the dynamic of shame and hiddenness and how it recreates and replicates trauma, especially sexual trauma, and how many stories there were of sex offenders who were literally replicating what happened to them right. because they never talked about it. There's a very famous story of something like, I, I'm going to get it a little mixed up, but in the world of studying sex offenders, there's like a famous story of like, tw- I don't know, a group of 10 or 12-year-old boys that were taken somewhere in the woods and there was some kind of abuse publicly, like they all witnessed it happening. The shame was so deep that everybody went silent, never talked about it. Mm -hmm. And the alarming rate at which they ended up replicating. And in my own life, I just have this memory of um, my son. He's, uh, he, he had sleep disorder when he was born for a variety of reasons. And he would wake every hour for more than five years. It was kind of crucifying. Wow. 
And I was working. And when I was two, and it never got resolved till he was five years old. So when he was about two, in the midst of some crazy kind of exhaustion, one day, he was being a normal two-year-old and kept saying, no, no, no. And, and I took a dish rag from my kitchen. Oh, and behind this, I have to say, like, there was a lot of hitting in my house. And even I'd been thrown up against a wall a few times. I'm like, I grew up with this. And I made a vow I would never physically touch my child. But in this moment where in exhaustion and rage took over, I took a dish towel that was wet on the end and I twirled it, you know, the way they can. And I, I did that to him with it. Right. You, you, uh, flick, you did a I towel flicked flick. it at him. Yeah. yeah. But I, Snap. it's a hard story to tell. Cause what I'll never forget is he was a great kid. And all of a sudden my beloved two-year-old boy was crouching in the corner. Yeah. Scared of his mother. Mm-hmm. And that was that moment, Chris, where you said it could be me. And so I went to the phone and I made an appointment immediately to talk with a professional that I knew and trusted. And I went in and I said, I'm here because I have to tell you what I did. And he was in a psychology field. I didn't, I mean, I was, I'm Catholic. I'd go to confession, but I wanted to put it out there. And he asked me why I did it. And I said, I have to speak what I did because it's going to make me own it. I have to say I'm the mother who swore I would never touch my son. And I did this thing and he wept in a corner afraid of his own mother. And I have to keep it in the light because that's what's going to hold me accountable. And you know, it did. I mean, I was never again. Once I saw the horror of that moment, no part of me was ever tempted but, but that's what we're invited to. And that's what Jean didn't allow for himself, right. that moment of truth to speak in the light. I did this. And had he, I think he could never have done it again if he ever spoke it in the light with someone who would hold him accountable. My dad slapped me once. I think I was, I don't know, eight or nine or something. And I was surely being a little asshole. And he immediately said, oh, my gosh, Daniel, I'm so sorry. That is never okay. I please forgive me for doing that. And I remember being really shocked by both things. And I still remember it. He never did it again. And I'm so grateful that, that he said that right afterwards, that it was like very clear, you know, as opposed to be like, well, he deserved it. I, I don't yeah. do that kind of thing. You know, like there's, he could have gone another way with it. This week's patron exclusive episode is a solo one. It's just me and a microphone. And I was responding to a listener question about sort of inerrancy of the Bible, but also what God uses to speak to us. And it prompted me to think about the differences between certain expressions of Christianity around the Bible. And so I contrasted Calvary Chapel, which is a Protestant sort of evangelical pseudo-denomination that reads through books of the Bible verse by verse and really emphasizes uh, just straight reading the text versus the Episcopal Church, who the gospel reading is in the center of the room. The, the book is golden. Everybody stands up and faces it. And it brought up this issue of a canon within a canon, basically different traditions having certain aspects of the Bible that they take to be normative and through which they look at the rest of the Bible. And uh, yeah, so we got into some of that stuff. So if you're a patron, make sure to check that out if that sounds interesting. If you'd like to become a patron and have access to that, as well as two exclusive episodes per month and the patron-only Facebook group, 
You can do that at patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. It is $5 a month, but if you are in a tight spot financially, there is a sliding scale. So please feel free to email me, youhavepermissionpodcast at gmail.com, if that's the case for you right now. Okay, back to the episode. The psychology of this is a good bridge to my final topic here. So I I have sort of two streams of thought under the same header, and that header is... Moving away from, uh, well, what should leaders do, which I think we've spent a good amount of time on, exposing things, having accountability. And I, I have more to think about as someone, both with a public platform, with the podcast, but then, of course, as part of my training uh, to be a therapist and to have really kind of interpersonal power over people in the room. Moving to listeners, readers, just people who are not in positions of power, who are trying to figure out who to listen to to make sense of the world. And so uh, the first of the two is I want to bring in a concept from psychology, the history of psychology, and get your guys' take on this. So early on, uh, people assumed, including psychologists, that knowledge was like uh, one thing. So if you were good at math, you would be good at literature. It was like people are either smart or they're not smart. And eventually... They started doing experiments to show that this was false, that actually being good at math is not transitive to being good with language, vice versa. I'm wondering if we could apply a similar paradigm here to someone like Vanier. Maybe holiness is not transitive in the way that knowledge is not transitive, that you might be really great at something in the spiritual realm. And that does not mean you're good at everything else in the spiritual realm. Uh, so I just want to throw that one out there to you guys and see what you think. Mm. Totally. I mean, I, I mean, the, what brings it to mind for me is is the my, my several year tour through the, the charismatic landscape that they're really big on talking about the fivefold gifting. You know, some are to some are given the gift of evangelism, to some are given the gift of uh, teaching or administration. I, I forget. I always tuned out during those sermons, but I I, I knew that that was a language they had um, that about multiplicity and i think it's about decentralized leadership that's good isn't there a sense in which we often do this though like mother Teresa, especially with saints especially with um there's like we use metaphors for this so light or enlightened like we we don't think of someone as being partially enlightened like their living room and master bedroom are enlightened but the den is still dark we you know we don't Pure or unstained, this kind of metaphorical language. Now I'm getting into your world, Chris, as an author. Uh, some of these metaphors that we use around holiness are really monolithic metaphors. They don't. We don't think of them as compartmentalized within a person. Yeah, yeah. Um, purity codes suck. If, if we're Christians who know our scriptures, we should know purity codes are the greatest danger to killing the presence of God. And we're yeah. so addicted to purity codes. Yeah, but I mean, Jesus even using light of the world, you know, the light cannot be around darkness. Like there, there's stuff that's non-purity code related that is still these sort of these more monolithic kind of metaphors, it seems to me. I mean, the the language I've learned for what you're talking about is kind of a manichaean imagination of like there's just light and dark and they're always... Yeah. war instead of integrated. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Kelly. Well, I mean, here's something I've been thinking about. Um, so my dad was born in 1925 and Jean was born in 1928. 
But my dad, uh, strict Irish Catholic, was absolutely obsessed with sexual impurity and how, the evils of sex. But what I learned later when I started thinking about my dad more and more after he died was it occurred to me when I looked at his parents' birth dates and his birth dates that my dad's parents, his parents were Victorian era Catholics, which is mind blowing. Because if you know anything about the Victorian area, era and the obsession with uh, the, the um, evil of not just sex, but of touch and trying to change babies' diapers without touching them and crazy stuff, <laughs> like you should look this insanity up. Okay. Well, it makes me wonder if Jean Vanier wasn't also really toxically affected by that early Victorian era kind of Catholicism, which was so twisted around theology of the body and any sense of the human person, because nothing really explains this for me about Jean except shame. All I keep coming back to is imagining what would allow him when in other ways he had such profound insight, how could he be so divorced from himself where one of the lines in the international study that the women, two of the women I think said this was when they would question Jean about their trauma and how awful this was. He said something like, well, it was good for me. I mean, I thought it was good. Wasn't it good? And it was almost like a junior high boy response. Hmm. And you look at that and you think, how could this towering intellect, like you, like you're pointing out, Dan, have such a gaping hole in another area, and yet that seems to be true. But I would say for our listeners, one other sign that I believe is not only true for Jean, but from what I've heard about Mother Teresa and probably a lot of other figures like them, is he really didn't have a life or a social life outside of this. This was morning, noon, and night, seven days a week, and that's the way Mother Teresa lived. And the more the more that we really explore what it fundamentally means to be human, I mean, a healthy human life needs play, needs rest, needs conversation, needs joking around. The other thing, Jean saw no value in television and movies. I used to argue with him about that. He would talk mm. about them as just being a waste of time. And I would try to tell him all I've learned from different pieces. So I think that there's You should have talked to him about Carl Jung and Star Wars, man. <laughs> <laughs> he had no time for it. Make the he, hero's journey connection. He didn't see the Ignatian way that that God speaks through yeah. everything. Finding God in everything, certain, right. Right. He didn't find God in everything. And I think anyone who lives a life that is hyper-focused and truncated, that maybe is a sign for all of us. Yeah. That goes really deep for Christians, Catholic and Protestant alike. I'm thinking about... The, story, the lives of the martyrs, the lives of the saints in Catholicism, missionary biographies in Protestantism, every single hero that yes. basically, almost without exception, that gets vaulted up are people who forsook the world. They forsook the ordinary pleasures of life that now, especially with my psychological education, I am increasingly thinking are pretty damn necessary to be balanced. I, I find myself if I could put it so crassly, moving frankly away from a biblical quote unquote um, model for the good life and toward an Aristotelian one, which is like the yes. golden mean finding the, the middle between courage and cowardice, you know, or I guess courage being in the middle between um, bravado and cowardice, right? Like, did, did, did you know Vanier's uh, doctoral work was on Aristotle? He's all yes, about Aristotle. He loved Aristotle, but not practicing that then. So that's, <laughs> 
I don't. We probably shouldn't open a whole other line of <laughs> reasoning, but but perhaps this isn't another element where he knew something so well, but he didn't actually live it. Aristotle would fucking love the cinema, like he would love yeah. the symphony, right? Like the beauty of a of a piece of music is like part of the harmony of the world and whatever. I mean, I don't. I don't know how to speak in Aristotle's you know, a 2300 year old voice, but that, but that just makes me think about that. And I'm reading Amy Peterson's book, dangerous territory, her mis her misguided quest to save the world as a missionary in Uh. Southeast Asia. And I am, she's quoting from all these lives of the missionaries and it's just exactly, it's just coming up for me and that that's an episode to come, but my last, okay. So this is my last bit on the same sort of topic of like for, for non-leaders who are discerning, maybe, this would be a good rule of thumb. People who are good at being public or popular or famous should never be our primary role models. If you are good at being popular, uh, then <laughs> you're, you're just there's something missing like that. Someone like Paul Fitterer, who we've been talking about, our friend and your your good friend. And my uh, I got to spend those three years kind of regularly meeting with him. Um, that guy can be genuinely good. And, and so to the extent that I become more public, more popular, more small F famous, I should not be a one-stop shop for anybody because if I'm getting, if I'm so good at communicating my message into the kind of thing that can go far and wide, then to that same extent, I have watered it down. There is no truth that is accurate and a soundbite. There are none. There is an inherent tension between popular things and people and like really, truly good things in people. I feel like it's becoming almost a joke that like yeah. anybody you think is going to satisfy, then inevitably something's going to happen with them. Well, maybe for me, that's that brings up something that's been the subtext for me in a lot of this. And I, there's there's another I don't know maybe maybe there's only seven left like spiritual leaders <laughs> like you're saying at the beginning of the conversation yeah there were ten who could or be, so yeah be, be up for being canonized and and one of them um, I I truly love and who worked with gang members in Los Angeles Greg Boyle um, and and I'm I'm happy to have this person in that this person knows my name and that we can have conversations when I need them um, and my first thought was oh. How am I going to handle it if something comes out with someone who I really would would call a hero? Yeah, and and I'm, I'm hesitant to bring it up because yeah, if this gets back to oh, and Father, not Father Greg, word too, right? Yeah. So Father Greg, I'm assuming you're listening to this. I love you so much. And, and <laughs> I'm I'm, I'm going to go and, ahead and, and take, take he's this. Not listening to this. T- take Chris, this as, yeah, as I my love as, Father Greg. Love his work. Yes. But if but if we can if we can right. find out that Jean Vanier, who spoke to the heart so precisely. Yeah can be also uh, trying to has, has some, has some real gunk under his fingernails that we're not seeing. I need to prepare my mind for, for, for father Greg and, 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 and I want to be careful. Let me take a long running start at this because I can't handle this in sound bites. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is I don't think there's, I'm not putting any accusation on it. I don't think there's any problem going on, but I need to, as a test case to prepare myself, one, how would I handle it? How do I need to even relate to um, someone that I look up to so much right now in maybe a more grounded way to apply all the complexity that we're talking about? So even if there were something coming out 
I would know, I would handle it with even greater attention. But also I, I've wanted to ask him as, as, as well as with, with many spiritual leaders, I've wanted to say, can you tell me where you sucked more often? Um, meaning I, the people that just speak so well from the light that they see so well, but haven't always integrated as Nadia Bowles Weber, I was mentioning earlier, does much better, I think, as saying, here's where I suck. And not just in a cute way, like I hate it when people do that, but it's in, like there was this one pastor I used to, he used to talk about sin and then use a, an analogies about his addiction to milkshakes. I just felt it was insulting. It was cute and it would make someone kind of like giggle in their chairs and yeah. husbands and wives would look to smile to themselves. It was just, it was a throwaway saccharine junk fake confession. Um, whereas Nadia can talk about the hatred in her, the fact where she, she wrote a whole book about talking about how she screwed up with people that she pastored. And it makes me want to say to other people, can you tell, I, I'm almost discouraged the more beautiful stories I hear coming out of your ministry because I feel more and more that I can't do that. Can you tell me more stories where you come home and you're depressed and you want to leave the ministry? Can you tell me where you've completely screwed someone up because you had a horrible day? How did you handle that and and repair that rupture? Uh, Maybe I need to, Father Greg, if you're listening, Call me, and I want, I want to hear that. Uh, but for, but for myself and for others, because when I speak, I'm going to speak in three churches in this next month, and I just I'm sketching out my notes of the stories I'm going to tell. I'm like, oh, I don't do that either. Can I tell stories of rupture and repair and confession, or That's am I good. just making them go home and think, man, Chris really knows how to love people. Chris is so good with those folks. Why do I suck so much with my family and the, my yeah. neighbors? That's good. That's a good piece of practical advice. Sharing your, uh... <laughs> but then. Well, okay, it doesn't matter. I was saying, then there'll be people who are good at sharing just enough of that, and they'll figure out how to hack that system, but we don't have to concern ourselves right. with that right now. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, any closing thoughts before we um, let ourselves uh, yeah. heal from this conversation? What's been running around in my mind, I was looking down trying to find a quote on, on my phone that I knew was here. Um, are the principles of discernment, which I think when we trust them and follow them, they are perhaps the safest shelter outside the immediate love of God. And actually, they're a tool of the love of God. I, I raised my son saying, for example, I said, you know, God never says no. He's like, what? I was like, you're going to hear all this stuff about no, this and no, that. Actually, behind every day, behind everything that seems like a no is a yes. Because what God wants for you and for me and for every human on this planet is fullness of joy and humanity. And there are certain ways, if we lean into things or we do certain things, it's going to harm us. And so if it seems like there's a no there, it's actually a yes, which is, yes, what I want for you is something so much better. So having said that, I want to read something. One of my heroes that I hope I can trust, because you asked the heroic question is, um, along with a lot of other people around the world, not only Catholics, but my Jewish friends, I have a lot of admiration and, and love for Pope Francis, who seems quite real in a lot of ways and yeah. does hang out and do fun things and knows popular music. And But recently, I saw someone post this quote from him on discernment of spirits, and it looks at the difference between what is for my ultimate good, which is always going to lead to joy and fullness of life, connection, community, and what's coming from my ego, which potentially could destroy me. And he said, regarding discernment of spirits, there are two voices that raise and excite within me 
different questions. What comes from God will be what is good for me, meaning the ultimate good. Instead, the dark voice will insist on another question, which is, what do I feel like doing? What do I want to do? What I feel like, what I want, the dark voice always revolves around the ego and its impulses and its needs. And it tends to be all at once and right now. It's like the whims of children right now. The voice of God instead never promises joy at a low price. It invites us to go beyond our ego to find the true good, the true peace. Let us remember, evil, darkness, never, never gives us peace. It always causes frenzy before and leaves bitterness after, right? And so with that, if Jean had been discerning, he would have said, I am publicly living a life of celibacy. Therefore, this impulse to have a sexual interaction with this woman is 100% coming from a tempter. It's not coming from God. I just think that we look at the person of Jesus being so radically different than the goody two-shoes that Chris was talking about in our churches that bind us up. Yeah, if we cling to those principles and we ask and we take long enough to pause and ask ourselves the question, I think the principles of discernment can be protective for us, whether we're famous, because I don't know the answer to your question, Dan. I want to believe that there could be a handful of people, like for me, one of my great heroes, Dr. Reverend William Barber, that there are, yeah, yeah, I mean, he is just so, such a hero to me. And the woman who's, who works with him, whose name I'm forgetting, but who I listen to. Liz Theo Harris. Yes. I mean, listening to her at the Poor People's March on Washington. What a woman. What a voice. I want to believe that those two are holding themselves accountable in discernment to their deepest truths in small issues and in great. And so I want to believe that some famous people do that. And I want to believe that we can do that. Well, and there's also, I mean, it makes me think of MLK, like he cheated on his wife, right? Like, does that mean that nonviolent protest is bunk? You know, like it doesn't, of course, right? Like, so it's, it's funny. We can do it with some people, but not with others. And, or the first time you hear about Martin Luther King's marital infidelities, it's a really a sting and it takes a while before you can kind of separate that out from his political philosophy or whatever, uh, and really his heart, you know, for, for justice and man, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe that's one to lean into for those of us who are struggling with still with the Vanier thing. Um, I Dan, don't know. I want- I, it's worse, it, it's worse than simply having an affair, a consensual affair, but it's, it's similar in some sense. Yeah, Chris. Towards the end, I, I feel like now's a good time to we are touch on that. End, so it's a great time good. to talk about uh, what the, the conversation that I told you about before that you asked me to tell earlier that I, I, I skipped over okay. um, about my conversation with two of the women at, at our yeah, church. Yes. This is a great time for that. Yeah. Cause I feel like that is, it gave me, it maybe sets the tone for conversations we're having around Jean Vanier or others that there might be two different issues going on under the table okay. um, in the conversation. And so, um, with one of the churches that I, I do uh, this one parish, one prisoner with, it was actually at the welcome home dinner at, at our pastor's home. And on one end of the table, this venue, the venue news had come up just to, that, that week. It was like March 2nd, I think when this guy got home from prison and we're, we're talking and it, it was a condensed version of the conversation we've been having for the last hour and a half. And our pastor, she was just lamenting everything there is to lament 
and wanting to hold up the goodness of Vanya's writings. And uh, the other woman uh, was just like her, her body just, you know, that, that kind of disgust move, like kind of like the, the, the thick the swallow, the, the, the shoulders up to the ears. Um, and, so, and she just kind of shivered and she said, I can't, I can't. I had to re- immediately remove the books from my house. And thankfully, so I'm now realizing how connected this all is, that same woman was, was going to be the leader of this one, one prisoner team. And she'd come up to me uh, early on after she'd said yes, because, you know, as a, as a good liberal, yeah, I want to pro, pro supporting the prisoners and the poor and the migrant farm worker community. And yeah, I want to help. And then she Googled the person's name and this person had some charges. I want to say surprise, surprise. Uh, but it oftentimes hits us a little bit later when it lands on our story. And this person had domestic violence charges. And she said, Chris, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this. Luckily, she didn't. Yeah, react and I, yeah. She said, I, I might not be the right person for this. I have experiences with those charges. And I said, okay. And I had to swallow just kind of my exhaustion from Ocal and need to reorganize or find a new point person for the team. But then thankfully we went out to coffee and I thankfully did the right thing, which was to just say, can you, you want to tell me more about that? And she started telling me more about being raised in the church and that that happened within family and within church and about 20 minutes into this conversation, we're like, we should be having conversations like this more often about what domestic violence we've experienced within the church and within our own families. And then one of us kind of reflected, huh, isn't it funny that we're only having this conversation because someone with domestic violence charges yes. is, that are open, that are undisclosed, or is coming to be embraced by this church? Maybe that's exactly what this program is about. And what a safe way to have someone with domestic violence charges come into your church. You know, there's, there's, there's abusers right. entering every church every Sunday with ties on and no one knows. At least this person has like it's on the public record. Right. And, there, yeah. and there's a team saying we want to know your story and support you. So what safer way? And so because of that, months of integration already happening in relationship with someone coming home from prison. Uh, I'd like to think that's part of what led to this better conversation about Vanier is she could say as she never would have in her years of church membership before, I have experiences with this stuff. So we're not just talking about Vanier. Right. We're talking, I'm a survivor of this kind of stuff. And it kind of like, it kind of tempered our tone. So instead of us wanting to all be the jury about Vanier out there, I saw that one person is, is carrying in their body a story of abuse. And they can't separate the goodness of Vanier's work from the damage because they're feeling the damage. And I, but the pastor's response I think is equally true that she doesn't have to carry that pain and that damage. And she can also say there is maybe some goodness here that we can carry forward in society. And I wonder if I I was mainly listening to that conversation, hearing them go back and forth. And for me, that was an education in these conversations moving forward as societies to realize some people with the privilege of not carrying the wounds might be able to move forward with some nuance and that needs to be in friendship and respect with the voices who need to have a more visceral reaction and say, I can't go there. No way. And maybe their desire to erase is still coming from that wound, which should maybe draw us. Maybe that's not the final word, but we can't get to whatever the final word is without passing through listening to that pain. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So there's two things I'd want to say um, in conclusion. First of all, I want to say thank you. I have a confession. Um, I've been really anxious about this conversation. I both felt really drawn to it um, 
I felt it was really important and necessary work for me. And I also was terrified of it, terrified that I would be triggered or I'd go blank. And this has been really profound to talk with both of you, Dan and Chris. So thank you very much. And secondly, I think what I would want to hold out for any listener on a personal level, part of what impelled me in the conversation was the experience of being a survivor. And I hadn't mentioned I'm a two-time survivor, and it's kind of what set me up for clergy abuse. And that is actually not at all unusual. Many of us who are survivors have multiple traumas. And so I had a trauma as a teenager. That set me up to be really vulnerable for future trauma. So what happened for me when I got involved in prison ministry, and this was years after having finally done extensive therapy, I never did therapy until my 40s, both the traumas had happened in my teens and my 20s. But I was with Mike Kennedy, an amazing Jesuit who founded the Jesuit Restorative Justice Initiative in California. And I was for the first time in a maximum security prison on the Mexican border in California, learning about how they do the retreats. And I was the only woman on a seven-person male team going in that day for retreat in a maximum security unit. And I was assigned a small group in the furthest corner of the room with gang members. And um, it was a special needs unit. None of them knew my history. And what happened to me was it was, um, it was kind of a mystical experience for me personally. I'm sitting in a small group and I'm profoundly moved by these men and I'm alone as a woman. And I had this little part of in my head, I laughed and I said the prayer, this prayer to God. And I said, thank you, God, because what you know, all my life, I've wanted interior freedom. And there is no way you could have more indicated to me that I'm healing and I'm becoming free than to stick me in a maximum security prison as the only woman in the room in a small group with gang members and sex offenders and to realize, yes, I can, I can see the humanity in my offenders I, or my, the perpetrators in my life. And what I experience in that is a freedom that is the greatest blessing of my life. And so I just hold that out as it would never be my business to try to push any other person who's been traumatized to take any kind of steps. I like Chris's model of it's receiving and hearing the story. But I could also hold out the story of saying, making the passage to interior freedom and to humanizing even the ones who harmed me has actually been the greatest blessing for me. So um, that's why I have a lot of energy about Jean and wanting to do the work personally and then in whatever way is helpful to other people. So thanks, Dan. And thanks, Chris. Thank you guys so much, man. What a conversation. I, I, uh, I think I need a shower, but also I feel... <laughs> I feel refreshed by it, oddly. Um, and I don't know. I, I feel like it's helped my own processing of this particular experience and also given me a lot to chew on. I'm, I'm really excited to listen back to this um, when it gets released. And I'm sure other listeners will feel the same. Thanks to Scott Can Jamie for editing this conversation. I've got links in the notes for that Larsh International Findings article, their official findings, as well as the principles of discernment, which Jennifer brought up, as well as a link to Jesuits Restorative Justice Initiative and Chris's work with Underground Ministries. I guess we'll see you guys next week. Of course, if you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. 
um, sliding scale if you can't afford that right now. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay, see you guys.